That was the opening to Narrow Margin, released in 1952, and starring Charles McGraw, Marie Windsor, Jacqueline White, and many more film noir type characters. <laughs> Boy, that's for sure, especially the bad guys. They, they made a lot of those movies. Yeah. And I'm Matt Johnson, and I'm recording from Portland today. And I'm Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, welcoming you all back to Classic Movie Reviews and our uh, visit about The Narrow Margin, which uh, is a wonderful film noir movie. It's classified as a B-movie, but boy, they got they got every dollar on the screen. It's just well done from beginning to end. Really, this is classified as a B movie because it seems it like is. it seems like an the, A movie to me. The budget, the budget for this movie was two hundred and thirty thousand dollars. Oh wow! Uh, a little bit about the background on the movie it was it was released by RKO Pictures, and the director was Richard Fleischer, and uh, we know Richard from uh, our review of Fantastic Voyage. Oh yeah, and then he also was one of the directors on Tora, 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 along with about. 50 or 60 other films, and um, Charles McGraw, isn't he a classic? He looks like Dick Tracy. He could be a great Dick Tracy. He's got a, one he of those could. really square jaws and really chiseled face. If you haven't seen it, a, a movie, I think it may have been the first one he did, or very early in his career, he and William Conrad from Gunsmoke fame in the radio days were the two killers in the movie The Killers. And they showed up to uh, to uh, kill Burt Lancaster or the Swede who had done some other guys wrong by stealing some money. I think it was made in like 1948 or so. It's an Ernest Hemingway story. But Charles McGraw and that is, is kind of scary because he's, he's a really bad bad guy. Here he's, a, he's just a very down-to-earth, hard-working professional cop. Yeah, and he's got strong morals, and he's not going to be bribed, or he's not going to go over to the dark side, no matter what. He's not He's not tempted in any way whatsoever, and uh, he gets a lot of mileage out of a water gun, a pistol that's a water gun. Remember that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just love this movie, and I also love, uh, I think, the railroad detective, that real fat guy. Yeah. I couldn't hardly get by him on the... On the train. Fatso, I think they called him. I forget him. the actor's name, but he made a couple of movies where that was kind of the theme of the movie. He didn't actually seem that fat to me compared to, like, today, you know, standards. Well, that, <laughs> you've been watching that show on cable television, My 600-Pound Life? Oh, unfortunately, oh, I have I have seen some of those, yeah. Wow. That's frightening. It is. Well, I feel, um, uh, one of the things I read about this movie was that it was not filmed on a train at all. That the, that was all just on the studio lot. The only the only scene that was actually filmed on a train was at the end when they were pulling into the Los Angeles uh, station. You know that's true. They probably had a regular mock up in the studio. Uh, there is one other part of the movie about halfway through where it is filmed in La Junta, Colorado. Remember they stopped. The train stops probably to refuel or whatever, and they get off. I think uh, the Charles McGraw character buys a paper or something like that. 
All right. That was filmed in La Junta, I was reading. But other than that, it is. It was uh, all on the lot. I did enjoy the, even though it's not really a train, it's like what a train would have been like, right, at that time. So I enjoyed seeing, like, the dining car and, and the lounge area and how the sleeper cars worked. And I thought it was a bit odd that the one woman and her little boy, who turns out to be one of the main characters, right? Like, she's, or no, it was her, her it was the, one of the main characters, like, nannies or something like that, was sleeping in the sleeper car without the door locked. That was a bit odd. Yeah, that is odd. Aren't you glad, though, that when you take the train, it's never as exciting as this train ride from Chicago to Los Angeles? I did meet a guy uh, on one of my trips that was going from Los Angeles to to Chicago through Seattle, and he had taken the train from Chicago to Los Angeles, and he was like a 20-year-old kid who was just out on this adventure, backpacking and seeing the sights, and I I totally thought of this movie when I talked to him. (laughs) No kidding. Nancy was saying that uh, they had they have family. Uh, they used to, have, I guess, they still have family in Chicago. And back in the fifties, uh, some of the family members would take the train from Chicago to Los Angeles and then return. We were even thinking that this fall we have to go back to Chicago for a wedding. We might take the train, but it's it's a forty-five hour trip. That's a long time to be on a train. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially in this film where every every person on there is a suspect of some kind or another. Yeah, it's interesting and you're never quite sure what's going on. And it does it does have a pretty good twist about three quarters of the way through, I thought. Oh, um, yes. Uh, are we going to do a spoiler alert? Or? Uh, <laughs> I think, well, if you haven't seen the movie, go watch the movie and then come listen to this podcast because we're going to talk about spoilers. The character... Uh, of Mrs. Frankie Neal, played by Marie Windsor, turns out to be someone different than we think. And then the uh, Anne Sinclair character, played by Jacqueline White and her boy, turn out to be someone different than we think. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting the way that uh, Marie Windsor played played the Frankie Neal character, because she really went all in and... I think part of her job as her character was to see if um, Charles McGraw's character, Detective Sergeant Walter Brown, was on the take. Yes. I just tangled with one of your chums. The one who thinks the other gal is you. He's cooling off in a baggage car with a pair of handcuffs. What was this top bid? Whose? Well, don't play dumb with me, Brown. You want to get your hands on that list because you've got a cash customer for it. That hood, am I right? You're a pretty good judge of crooks, Mrs. Neal. The only place you slip up is with cops. I turned the deal down. Then you're a bigger idiot than I thought. When are you going to get it through your square head that this is big business? And we're right in the middle. Meaning you'd like to sell out? With pleasure and profit, and so would you. What are the odds if we don't? I sing my song for the grand jury and spend the rest of my life dodging bullets, if I'm lucky, while you grow old and gray on the police force. Oh, wake up, Brown. This train's headed straight for the cemetery. But there's another one coming along. A gravy train. Let's get on it. Mrs. Neal, I'd like to give you the same answer I gave that hood. But it would mean stepping on your face. Are you trying to say it's no deal? I just said it without the trimmings. If you want those, keep talking. Because she was really pushing him to take that bribe. You know? She played that part. You know, the first time I saw this movie, <clears throat> I think it was on Turner Classic Movies. I may have seen it in college, but I don't, I don't think so. 
I was really surprised at that twist in the story. As far as the plot of this goes, it's pretty straightforward, other than that one twist. Charles McGraw as Sergeant Walter Brown and his uh, his his uh, sidekick, who is played by Don Badeau, Sergeant Gus Forbes, are sent from Los Angeles to Chicago to pick up uh, Marie Windsor's character, who she's um, married to a mob member, and they want to bring her back to Los Angeles to testify at this mob member's trial. So they have to protect her on the train ride. And unfortunately, when they pick her up in her apartment in Chicago, the sidekick to Charles McGraw gets uh, killed, shot and killed by one of the henchmen of the mob leader. They barely make they barely make it on the train to get out of town. But I thought that scene where uh, that happens was really really cool because they're coming out of the apartment where uh, Frankie Mrs. Frankie Neal is living or hiding out, and she accidentally drops or like somehow breaks her necklace and then all those like pearls go scattering everywhere and then one of the pearls drops off the top balcony down to the bottom and the camera pans down and there's this bad guy like in shadow there with a gun and i thought that was probably one of the cooler scenes in in any movie that i'd seen it's the beauty of of black and white photography and an excellent director but as you looked at this you you didn't realize it was a b level movie oh no way no way i watched it again last night just to because i wanted to see what it was like to, to watch it after i knew kind of what the the whole story was and i was still kind of just riveted by that particular scene it was really well done it it, it is from the beginning to the end i've become a, a fan of uh, rotten tomatoes oh yeah the reviews <clears throat> and uh their uh, review of this is 84%. That's really high. It's really good. And I, I found one quote that I really liked from uh, Dennis Schwartz, who was a critic, a film critic. And his quote is, A breathtakingly suspenseful, low-budget crime th- thriller that is flawlessly directed. The fast-paced, pulpish, taut story is filled with tense incidents and a well-executed twist. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, there's some great dialogue in the car between yes. between, <laughs> between <laughs> Charles McGraw's character and uh, Don Don Badeau's character. And I bet you're wondering the same thing I am. What she looks like. I don't have to wonder. I know. Well, that's wonderful, Walter. Nobody's seen her, but you know what she looks like. What a gift. Oh, come off of it. You're just making talk. <laughs> well, we get there just as fast talking. What about this day, Mr. Crystal Ball? A dish. What kind of a dish? 60 cent special, cheap, flashy, strictly poison under the gravy. Amazing. And how do you know all this? Well, she was married to a hoodlum, wasn't she? What kind of a dame would marry a hood? All kinds. Oh, Gus, at heart, you're still a Boy Scout. <laughs> Maybe it's just old age coming on. Anyway, I got five bucks that says you're wrong this trip. What can I lose? Five bucks, you're on. That was classic, like, pulpy film noir dialogue to me. I loved it. Every time I see Charles McGraw, I think he's going to get into a fight. And he does. <laughs> it's a sad story about his life. He, uh, he died when he accidentally... This is, uh, he was living in um, 
Tarzana, I believe, or Reseda, somewhere in that area. And he fell through his shower, taking a shower, he fell through the door, and it was a glass shower, and he he died from that accident. Oh, my God, that's terrible. That's, that's tragic. That's what I was reading. Wow. This movie won an Academy Award. Oh, for what? what was for Best Screenplay in 1950, uh, for 1952. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's it's really well done. And the the once they get on the train, um, then it's like this whole cast of characters that are like coming and going, and and like the way that Detective Sergeant Walter Brown ends up bumping into Anne Sinclair's character, the the Anne Sinclair character is is really well done because he he he's just trying to keep an eye on the bad guy, and he sits down at this table, and Anne Sinclair's there, and She's like, well, I think I'll go drink this at a different table. And then, perfectly timed, the train, like, lurches, and then she spills her drink all over his lap. Care for something, sir? What? Uh, yes, the same as hers. I'll finish this at another table. Oh! I'm terribly oh. sorry. That's oh, all right. It'll dry. Oh, I'm sorry. Ugh. Don't I even get a chaser? I'm really sorry. At least let me pay for your drink. No, this one's on me, too. Fix her another, please. Yes. The same as his. Oh, I'm so sorry. Someday they'll get around to paving this track, then these accidents won't happen. Here's to better tracks and steadier nerves. Mine or yours? Yours. You know, you'll get there just as fast if you're relaxed. That sounds familiar. Right. I am a bit on edge tonight. Excuse me. Wait, you... And then he's such a gentleman, he's going to buy her drink again and buy his own drink, and then they start talking. But, uh, you know, that was really well done and it was pretty believable because they did need to to meet up on the train for the story to to progress the uh, the uh, character that charles mcgraw played could not have been more upright i've always wondered why why he never really reached kind of an a-list actor status he was always sort of the second guy in movie. this is one of the few movies where he was the, the lead he did a lot of. It, it, I don't know if you've seen um, Spartacus with Kurt Douglas. Yeah, he's the uh, Charles McGraw is the um, is the supervisor and trainer of the slaves that are going to be gladiators, and uh, is the antagonist to Kurt Douglas' character in that movie. But he played characters like that throughout his career. He had a very good career. I, I always you, I always wonder about that. You know, there's so there's so much that goes into becoming a big movie star, you know, that's just I know. Timing, luck, you know, working hard obviously, but just getting the right breaks at the right times and you know, you think of somebody like John Wayne who we've reviewed four of his movies now and he 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 kind of languished as a B movie actor for many years before becoming a superstar. For sure, he made a he made, didn't we look that up one time? He made as many of those quickie cowboy movies as he did the regular movies after he became a star. Yeah, some, or more. Some yeah. large number of 
He must have played cowboys in those 1930 films 45 times. Um, what, how old was Charles McGraw when he, when he died? Was he in his... Uh, you know, I don't remember that. I think he would have been like late 50s, early 60s. Okay. Um, oh, he was, eight, he was 66. Okay. When he died? Yeah. I guess in real life, from what uh, my friend that I visit on Friday uh-huh. knew him and said he was a really pleasant kind of guy, not at all like he looked on the screen. <laughs> Here, here's his description on IMDb. Okay, this is great. Gravel-voiced, stony-faced, and grizzled-looking actor Charles McGraw notched up dozens of TV and film appearances, often portraying law enforcement figures or military officers, plus the odd shifty gangster. (laughs) (laughs) He was definitely that in The Killers, I'll tell you. That was a that was a really well done movie. I was well, um, I, I was kind of fascinated by uh, Marie Windsor's character too. I thought she was really beautiful, you know, and she played that off really well as a as like a mob wife, mob boss wife. Oh, totally! I, like I say, I was really surprised when I found out the little twist in the plot there. Do you have some background on her? I do not have that in front of me. Uh, she was she went to Brigham Young University and trained for the stage under Maria. Ospenskaya before she began playing leading roles in B pictures in the late 40s. Her best work was in the film noir category, most notably her role as the manipulative double-crossing wife of Eliza Cook Jr. in The Killing. Oh, he was, she was in that film too. I, I, I had forgotten that. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. That's a very good movie. It's a great black and white film noir and the, uh, the lead, uh, Burt Lancaster, leaves the scene early, but Edmund O'Brien, another favorite of mine, plays the insurance investigator tracking down what happened. You know, I I envisioned back in the 1940s and 50s uh, a couple of hundred actors in Hollywood that did these B-level movies just one after the other, so they were always working. Yeah, totally. And I think that still goes on today, but now they're maybe more making, like, cable TV shows or movies or, like... You know, so there's like this 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 large uh, working force of actors in Los Angeles, but you know they're never really the the top billed person. But you know, you see them and you see, oh, they, that person looks familiar. I've seen them somewhere before. Where have I seen them before? You know, and it's they're in a lot of different shows. If you saw my friend that I see on Friday, you'd go, "Who is that guy? I've seen him before." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and you need a book to kind of identify them. I I, uh, was unable to find out whether or not this movie made a lot of money. I'm assuming that it did well because it had such a small budget. And it was remade, right, in the 80s with... um, uh, It was remade with Gene Hackman and Ann Archer in 1990. I have a quote on that. Oh, let's hear it. The film was remade as Narrow Margin with Ann Archer and Gene Hackman in 1990. It was directed by Peter Himes. Hackman's performance was praised but the later version is generally considered a lesser work compared to this original movie that we're reviewing today. Oh, okay. Have you seen the remake, the Gene Hackman remake? I'm pretty sure I saw it in the theater when it came out for some reason. I don't know if we went together or or what, but I've definitely seen it. We probably went together in 1990, I would think so. The movie is, again, not a long movie. It's about 75 minutes long, and uh, there's a host of bad guys, and through it all... Charles McGraw endures, and, and, and they get to Los Angeles, and the plot twist is revealed, and we know that things are going to be fine. 
I've not been to Union Station here in Los Angeles, but I, I assume that that's probably pretty much still kind of looking the way it did when they filmed it there. I bet it does. Yeah. And we, and we can't forget that he had some help from the special investigator of the railroad. You're under arrest. This ain't your territory. What's the charge? Soiling towels, for one. Put your hands behind your head and face that window. What's going on here? I'm an officer making a pinch. Mr. Jennings, will you step in here a moment, please? This man claims he's an officer. I'll take over, conductor. On what authority? Special agent for the railroad. We'll handle this. There won't be any trouble. All right. I'll wire Albuquerque. Your credentials won't be necessary, Brown. I checked on you last night. What do we book this man on? Take your choice. Attempted bribe resisting an officer, concealed weapon. I want him held in technical custody until the next stop. Also, pick up his partner, Vincent Yost. He's somewhere on board. Pleasure's all mine. You can take your hands down now. There'll be a report to make out. Where will I find you? Up front, baggage car. I should have tumbled to you before this, flashing that big railroad watch and talking like a timetable. <laughs> all right, walk ahead of me real close, and everybody will think we're old friends. Big company, Copper, with branches all over. Don't forget that. The guy that... <laughs> yeah, I, you know, for some reason, I, I don't find that guy's... I don't find him on my list. Hmm. It wasn't Harvey Harry. He was the train conductor. Uh, Sam Jennings, maybe? Paul Maxey? That might be it. I just... I, uh, I, I'm not... There's I'm no picture him. for him, though. I don't know who, who he was. But, yeah. Yeah, it was a really good movie. I really enjoyed it. I uh, What was your rating for it? So... Uh, what was your what was my rating? Well, you want me to tell you mine? Oh yeah, you I would to go first this time. Oh man, I I kind of waffle between a nine and a ten on this one. I'm going to go with a nine. Yeah, I, I'm at a nine too. It's uh, it's right up there, and it's it's um, when you compare it to some of the movies with bigger budgets that kind of bombed out. This is it, quite a piece <clears throat> of work. The only thing that I found annoying, and I was reading on the message boards on IMDb about this, was that uh, the way that the, the the young boy, the son of Anne Sinclair, uh, yes. I found that to be a little bit overdone. Hey, I know you. I saw you sneak out there. You said you had a compartment. Take it easy. Take, Take it easy. your hands off me. He's a robber. That's good. He's not that's a good boy. Let's go find Marty. Hang on, Marty. Well, say, he's some little scrapper. Yeah, yeah, we're trading him that way. Well, now we'll find him. Don't the other Here's your boy, madam. Tommy, where on earth have you been? He got lost. I did not. He's got a gun under his arm. I found it. Call the police. He's very excitable. Well, you're probably feeding him wrong. Too many oats. The police are locked. You know, like I, I understand why it was done that way, uh, because it wanted it did build up some tension. But every time that he came on the screen, I was I was a little bit like annoyed. Yeah, I I agree with that. I, yeah, I thought it could just they could if they just ratcheted it down like one notch on like how much he was. I wouldn't say overacting, but it was just sort of the 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 volume of what he was doing and just sort of the amount of yelling and like. Just being obnoxious, you know, it was just, I thought it was a little bit too much. I've, uh, I w- uh, Nancy and I went to uh, Minot last summer, and uh, there were three kids on that flight that could have been brothers and sisters to that character on the train. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> really, it was really loud and 
disruptive. So we so, both give it a nine, and uh, I would certainly recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it. And it's, it, I think it's in the public domain. Oh really? Oh, I bought it on iTunes. That was it was well, only I may, like I may be mixing. I've been reading a lot about different movies. It was pretty inexpensive on iTunes. I'm incorrect. It's I don't think it is on the. I, I'm thinking of another film. Sorry about that. Well, there are a lot of movies from this era that have lapsed into the public domain. It's it's interesting. Yeah, I, I I don't know if they got lost in the shuffle of studio mergers and acquisitions and buyouts or what. Yeah, I mentioned last week that you know we had joked around about watching like four bad movies, and I mentioned that I had that DVD with fifty horror movies on it, and they're they're all in the public domain. You could watch them oh my you know, goodness. On, online, and and uh, you know it's it's uh, it's cool in a way that you can do that, but it's it's always interesting to me to to think about how that happens. Yeah, but I don't I don't know the process, but it can't be that difficult well i think it's just that they don't get renewed like you say probably they probably get lost in between different mergers and acquisitions or you know changes of leadership within studios and things like that moving on uh we're going to do some other train movies and then we're going to i think that we after the train movies we should do two three or four really really bad movies we can't (laughs) do hardware because it, it was made after 1979 but that would be right up there wouldn't it it would be <laughs> so maybe I we could pick with... one from the 40s the 50s the 60s and the 70s and, the 70s. and like <laughs> okay I'll, I'll look around for the 40s and 50s i've got a couple of thoughts on that one of them involves bella lagosa uh plan nine from outer plan space <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we should definitely watch that one i haven't seen that before so Going forward, our next podcasts are going to be train movies. So I've come up with three that I think, and these are in no particular order, but they're they're all really fun movies. One is the Harvey Girls from uh, 1946 with Judy Garland and I believe John Hodiak. And then from 1938, an Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Lady Vanishes, a mystery set on a train. And then uh, Murder on the Orient Express from 1974. Murder on the Train, and that's an Agatha Christie Yeah, for sure. Film. Let's do it. Those, those, all, right. all, sound, those all sound we good can, to me. We can surprise our audience by whichever one we pick, since we don't know which one we're going to do first right now anyway. Yeah, we'll figure that out, though. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. Well, uh Maybe we'll start with the older one and then work our way up to the, the newer ones. Oh, yeah, let's do that. So we'll start with The Lady Vanishes from 1938. All right, let's do that. So that's okay. next time. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. This is Matt Johnson coming to you from Portland, Oregon. And Bob Johnson in Los Angeles wishing everyone happy movie watching. Running and hiding all my life? Well, right now I think it's a safe idea. No, right now it's a good time to stop. Where is it we're going? Hall of Justice, a couple of blocks. Then these gentlemen will have to excuse us. We are going to walk. You heard what the lady said, boys. Attention, please. 49, Central Pacific, train number 18.